The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. When I was in seminary, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, my wife at the time, uh, Rebecca and I were actually both in graduate school. She was uh, getting her master's in preparation to become a counselor, and, and I was preparing to become a pastor, and we lived in this small home, and there's this little yard behind it, and uh, when we moved in, the backyard area was just all clay and mud, and I was feeling like, okay, this is my yard. I, we have to have grass here, and so um, some of you know, like, that, that is a massive undertaking for someone like me, okay? I'm not good with that kind of thing. And uh, my, my friends were like, look, you could lay sod, but, you know, what you really should do is just lay the seed for the grass, let it grow naturally. It's much less expensive, and it's an easier process. And I'm like, yes, of course, that's what I'm going to do. And I did not realize all that I was getting myself into. So... I went out in the back and I tried to, you know, till the soil a little bit. It was this kind of hard clay and then I spread all the seed and I marked like a boundary around the yard so no one walked through and trampled the little seedlings. But something that I didn't realize with like one of the challenges of waiting for the grass to sprout. I mean, it's one thing to have sod down and immediately you see grass and you just try and water it and keep it green. The other thing is just like looking out the window every day, like waiting for one little sprout. And, and an additional challenge with seedlings is in the woods behind um, our, our house, there was this creature that would come out and eat the little seedlings. It was this furry fat woodchuck, like a groundhog. And it would just come like wandering into the backyard. It would just plop its big fat furry self down and just start eating these seedlings. Okay, I've got a wild animal in my backyard. Now, I grew up here in South Florida and my only encounter throughout my life with um, wildlife is the Muscovy ducks that came into my yard, okay? Does anyone know what I'm talking about, the Muscovy ducks? All right. The way to get a Muscovy duck off of your lawn, if you're new to South Florida, let me just, you know, give you the the insight. You scream and run at it. That's all you need. You scream and run at it. It flies away. It gets very scared. So, That is the only tool in my tool belt that I have when dealing with wild animals. I know nothing else. So when I see this woodchuck, I said, okay, I know how to deal with a wild animal. I go out the back door, I'm standing on the patio, and I just stare at that woodchuck, okay? And all of a sudden it goes, hmm? And we're just, our eyes are locked. I mean, it's like the Old West, okay? It's like a showdown here, all right? And all of a sudden, I just shriek and I run at it. I mean, it's like a Comanche war cry, and I run at this woodchuck. And at that moment, he picks himself up, and it's like he says, Oh no. And he runs at me. <laughs> now, I want you to think about this, okay? Man and beast 
are about to have a collision, okay? Like what is, and everything slows down like millisecond by millisecond, and I'm realizing he doesn't have like a friendly little beak like a Muscovy duck. He has these huge razor teeth that he chucks wood with, okay? And these huge claws, and I'm like, what is, I'm running at him thinking, what is about to happen to my body, okay? And I'm envisioning he's wrapping himself around my face, maiming me for life. So I did what anyone would do in that situation. I shrieked like a little girl and ran back into the house. <laughs> and I abdicated my yard and my seedlings to the woodchuck. It was now his, his property and his domain. Okay, I was not ready for the entire journey that uh, just spreading grass seed entailed. I mean, we in our culture, we're so used to kind of making it, you know, quick and easy, okay? Very rarely, if we want flowers, do we actually go to the ground and plant a seed, Someone's done all of that hard work for us. We go to Lowe's or Home Depot, and there's, it's already in a pot. It's already blooming. It's in, like, perfect soil already. We just have to decide if we want to do the pain of just digging the hole. I mean, that's all we have to do and place it in there, okay? And if you, I don't know when the last time you did it. It was probably, like, for an experiment in school of how they did it in the days of yore or something, but the last time you actually planted a seed and just waited for it to grow, I mean, that is some, that's a serious lesson on delayed gratification. You put it in the soil, and now you're caring for dirt for a while. You're pouring water on it, you're putting it in the sun, and you're just waiting to see slowly, 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 and it takes so long for a flower or an herb or some kind of fruit-bearing plant to emerge. We are so used to quick and painless, that we have just kind of this expectation of how can I get to where I want to be as fast and as comfortable as, as I can. And on our journey walking with God, that expectation, just those false expectations in general, so often trip us up. Because all of a sudden when something's not quick and painless, it's like we're wondering what in the world is going on. We're talking in this series about overflow and what does it look like to thrive? And what does that process look like? And one of the best things for us in understanding what it looks like to thrive, I mean, Jesus said, I've come to give you life that you may have it to the fullest, have life abundantly. As we're in pursuit of what does that look like, Jesus, one of the most important things we could possibly have are the right expectations of what that journey looks like. We're going through the book of Zechariah, the beginning of the book of Zechariah. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open to Zechariah chapter 1. We are going to look in verse 7 here today, starting in verse 7. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7. God has a word through this prophet Zechariah for his people. Here's what happens. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, 
sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now pause with me there. Let me just back up and just talk through what's going on here. The opening section of the book of Zechariah is Zechariah getting a word from God and preaching it. It's very straightforward. He has a message and he, he shares it directly with God's people. Almost the entire rest of the book of Zechariah is not that straightforward. It is full of these visions that Zechariah is having. And so he's seeing these things in his mind, but it feels like he's actually there. He's having these visions, and these visions are just dripping with this rich symbolism, and they're emblematic, they're metaphoric, rich symbolism, and it takes a little bit of work to kind of understand what these symbols mean, but when we push into it, the payoff is huge. They're, they're just deeply rich and profound. And so let's just kind of get our bearings here. What's happening um, for starters, it says on the 24th day of the 11th month, um, we know that when you compare this timetable with the ancient Persian records, we can know exactly when this is. This is February 15th, 519 BC, several hundred years before the time of Jesus. The most important part of this for you to know for this passage is that this is mid-February. It's winter. End of winter if for this part of the world. So within about a month, Israel's gonna start, flowers are gonna start appearing, they're gonna start blossoming and blooming here in, in this part of Israel. But at this point, it's winter. It's winter, but spring is coming. The time in history is important because it sets the context for the people who are hearing this. God's people have just returned back from exile in Babylon. Jerusalem had been completely destroyed. It was in ruins. All the people taken back to Babylon. They have just returned to their city that's in ruins. They've just started rebuilding it, and they've just started rebuilding God's temple there in the center of the city. It's the centerpiece of the city. They've just started rebuilding this temple, but it's just the very beginnings of what has been a very, very historically difficult season for God's people. So he has this vision. What does he see? Zechariah says, I'm seeing down in a glen. What does that mean? That's a valley, down in a ravine. He says, I'm seeing down in a glen, there's these myrtle trees, and there's these seven horses with riders down in these myrtle trees, okay? They're down in this valley, um, and the myrtle tree is significant. You will see that it references the myrtle trees all through this passage. And it's one of those trees that ends up being a symbol throughout the Old Testament. There's all kinds of trees referenced in the Bible. You've got the sycamore tree, you've got a cypress, you've got a cedar, you've got the olive tree. All of those trees are 
strong. Some of them are very large, very sturdy, but not the myrtle. The myrtle's more like a shrub. It's a bush. It's this small, hardy little shrub, but what's significant for this story is it's an evergreen. So here's the scene in the valley. It's the end of winter. There may not be anything green around but these little myrtle bushes. And standing in these myrtle bushes, there is a man standing there. And there's these horses and their riders. Zechariah says, who are these riders? And there's an angel with him who says, I will tell you, I'll show you. And then the man standing among the myrtle bushes, he speaks up. This kind of mysterious figure. He speaks up and says, these are basically God's patrols. They go throughout the earth. There's four of them that's symbolic of the four corners of the earth. They go to the four corners of the earth representing this picture that God knows. He knows. He, has, he knows everything that happens everywhere in every corner of the earth. There's no circumstance. There's no life. There's no uh, scenario. There's nothing that he doesn't know. Does God literally have four horsemen that get him this information? Of course not. He's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He knows everything everywhere. He sees it all. But these are symbols, these horsemen, that they are patrolling to the ends of the earth, bringing back God's information. This mysterious man says, he says, uh, that's who these men are. And then the four men respond to this man, and now this man gets a second name. He's, he's a man, but he's also described as the angel of the Lord. It says these, these writers answer the angel of the Lord, this figure among the myrtles. And this is what they say. They say the whole world, we've patrolled the whole world, and it is at rest. Well, that sounds like a good thing. I mean, it sounds like there's peace around the world. But this means tranquility, and it's actually not a good thing. Here's why. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which, which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. See, here's the thing. You've got this, this angel of the Lord, this man. He's standing among the, these myrtle shrubs. And these patrols come back and they say, the whole world is at rest. And that's a bad thing. Why? Know the state that Israel's at. They have just been crushed. Their city's in ruins. They're in this very, very lowly place. And the people who did this to them are at ease. You know, one of the most painful things to walk through in this life is when someone's hurt you, oppressed you, unjustly treated you, and, and you're suffering and you look at the person who's been the oppressor and it looks like everything's fine for them. 
That's one of the most painful things in this life, isn't it? In fact, sometimes it looks like, why am, why am I suffering and the evil person is winning? Like, they're thriving. The injustice. And this man, this angel of the Lord, is standing among these shrubs, crying out, when will there be mercy on your people? What's this picture here? The myrtle bush is often a symbol for Israel. Look at the picture. These bushes in a humble estate, not a strong, large sycamore or cedar, a small, humble bush down in a valley. That's Israel, God's people. And there's a man standing in the midst saying, when will there be justice for those who are down here in this valley, in this humble place? They're sturdy, they've survived the winter, but when is springtime coming? Do you see this picture? Look at what he says. Let's finish up this vision. Verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly, what's that word there? Jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again, choose Jerusalem. At the beginning and the ending of this, you see the word comfort. Zechariah is known as a prophet who brings comfort to God's people. And here's what we see promised right here. He says, God is saying, here is the comfort. I know you're still in winter. I know springtime hasn't come yet. I know you're down in the valley still, and I know that you're still in a humble place as a small shrub. I know that you're still in the valley, but he's saying, take comfort because I am, I am bringing mercy back to you. I have chosen you again. I am, I am here, and I will bring prosperity back to my cities. He says, I am jealous for you, and I am bringing prosperity back to my cities. I want to unpack that part there, prosperity to my cities. The first is, is cities, because here's what the, part of what this passage communicates. God loves cities. He loves cities. We talked about this um, in the fall when we were going through the book of Jonah. He, what God said about Nineveh is he says, I love that great city. And Nineveh was notoriously wicked. But he says, man, that city is just packed full of human beings. How could I not love it? He loves cities. And that challenges us as believers sometimes. Because sometimes when we think of the city, we think of as like a place of like, just darkness and sin and wickedness, whereas when you get out into the wilderness, that must be where God is. So let me give you um, an, an example. I want you to imagine a person, he's been waiting for his vacation, 
And at his desk at work, he has a picture of where he's going. He's been planning this for years. He's just so excited. He's got that picture. And he gets in his car. It requires a long road trip. He drives all the way to this place. He's thinking about it each step of the way. Oh, I can't wait. I've been looking forward to this for months. And he finally gets to his destination. He drives up, puts his car in park, opens the car door, closes it, just looks around. <sighs> finally here takes in all the sights, the sounds, the smells, and he says, this is God's country. Now, what do you imagine he's seeing right there? Okay, what, what, what do you imagine he's seeing? You know, some of you are like, clearly he's talking about the mountains of North Carolina. I mean, naturally, that's exactly what he's seeing. I mean, he just got there. The smells of the forest and, and just the ridge upon ridge of, of the smoky mountains. Some of you are like, no, he's, he, he just pulled up alongside. Like there's a little brook. Here's the babbling brook. And he hears the birds chirping. And he's getting his fishing pole out. Some of you are like, you know what? No, no, he just pulled up to just this small cottage on the beach. There's no one else around. He's hearing the waves lapping up on the shore. He's out there in God's country. Okay. Did any of you envision him pulling into downtown of a large city? One person, okay? Did any of you envision he gets out and he's like, ah, the smells. Some hot dog vendor over here, just so familiar. Ah, yes, the sounds of honking horns, yelling pedestrians and sirens. I've been waiting for this moment. See, in our minds, when we go to God's country, we think of out where no humans are. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that part of the country and that part of the world too. It is wrong if we forget that God loves cities. He picked one place for his temple to be built where his presence would tangibly dwell and it was not the countryside. It was in a city. He loves cities. In fact, if one day you're imagining heaven and you're like, it's like we'll return to the Garden of Eden. It's not a garden. Something is descending from heaven. It's a city. The new Jerusalem, you're like, wait a minute, but I thought that there was like a, the, the river that was in, and Eden is still there, and there's a tree of life, and also I thought that was still there. Yes, Eden has been turned into a city by God. He loves cities. He wants these cities to overflow with prosperity because his presence is going to be there. Now, he's wanting and he's promising this overflow is coming. And he says this overflow of prosperity. And when we hear in our culture this word prosperity, we think almost exclusively in economic terms. We think of financial prosperity. But the Hebrew word here is tov, which is just this word that means goodness. It includes economics, but it's meaning goodness will overflow. He's promising comfort and goodness to overflow. Okay, before we pull all these pieces together and see what this vision communicates to them and what it means for us today, there's one more piece to this puzzle that we have to put together. Who is this mysterious man that's also called the angel of the Lord that's standing among the myrtles that represent the people of God? Who is this man? 
This phrase, angel of the Lord, is this tricky, mysterious phrase that appears at various parts during the Old Testament. And for us, when we see angel, the word angel simply means messenger. And there are such a thing as the creatures, angels, that God made. But sometimes it's meaning something like a messenger. And so that when there, you see this phrase in the Old Testament, angel of the Lord, sometimes it's meaning more than just simply an angel. The first time the angel of the Lord appears, it appears to a woman named Hagar. And she has been deeply abused and oppressed and she's fleeing for her life. She finds herself all alone in the wilderness just by a spring. And she stops there alone, the victim of abuse and oppression. And it says the angel of the Lord. It's the first time in the Bible that phrase appears. The angel of the Lord appears to her. And he says, what are you doing? She says, I'm running for my life. And he says, you can return now. It's going to be okay And he says, I have a plan for your life. I'm going to bless you more than you can even dream. And then she says, I have seen the God who sees me. She refers to this being that's speaking to her as God. And what a beautiful statement when she's all alone, wondering if anyone even notices her. She realizes God sees her in the wilderness. Several chapters later, there's another guy named Abraham. He's at the absolute worst crisis of his life. See, for decades, he had been waiting for one promised child named Isaac. Early on in his life, God promised that he would have many children, and he and his wife had been able to have no children. And decade after decade after decade after decade passed, and finally, they're holding their promised child, Isaac. What an incredible moment of fulfillment. A few years later, God says something to him that is absolutely unthinkable. He says, look, Abraham, I gave you this child, but you need to sacrifice him. You need to kill him and sacrifice him to me. What is, that? what is Abraham supposed to do with that? He takes this child. He walks up to this mountain all alone with his, with his son at this point, who's a little bit older, puts him on this altar. And in his mind, he is going to have to kill this son of promise. And he's just thinking, the only way I can work this out, because this child has a promise on his life, is that I'm going to have to suffer killing him and wait for God to resurrect him from the grave. And he raises his knife and it says the angel of the Lord speaks down from heaven. A voice from heaven. It, says, it calls it the angel of the Lord. And he says, Abraham, stop. He says, now I know that you have been obedient to me. Again, it seems like God speaking. One more moment with the angel of the Lord. Of course, as you know, with Abraham, Isaac, uh, you may know the story. There was a, a ram that was caught in the bushes and, and he takes and the ram becomes the substitute. He sacrifices the ram and he does not have to sacrifice his own son. God spared his son. But if, several generations later, there's a man named Moses. And he knew from the beginning of his life because his people, the Hebrew people, were being oppressed in Egypt and he somehow is being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And he realizes his heritage and his position. And he knows he has been called. He, he knows God has placed the dream in his heart that he is the one that will be the deliverer of God's people who are enslaved. He knows that. 
But he takes it into his own hands. He ends up killing someone and he has to flee for his life. And he spends 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep. I mean, I wonder what year he let go of the dream. Six months in, maybe? Okay, clearly I misunderstood God. Clearly I let, he let the dream go. Must have. I won't be the deliverer of Egypt. And one day, 40 years in, he's an old man at this point. He sees a bush on fire. And he walks up to the bush, and a voice comes out of the bush. It says, the angel of the Lord, is what it's described, speaks out of the bush and says, don't come any closer, Moses. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. I'm sending you back to Egypt. You are going to be the deliverer of my people. But Moses, at this point in his life, doesn't have the bravado he used to. He says, no, I can't go. Uh, Even if I go, who will I say is sending me? And the angel of the Lord, the voice out of this bush says, tell them, I am is sending you. Almighty God himself meets Moses in the wilderness when his dreams have all but been snuffed out. Who is this angel of the Lord? I mean, all, you see at these moments, this angel of the Lord is compared to God. So it's, it's God, but wait a minute. Here among the myrtles, he's called a man. Who could this be in this vision? It's the God-man, Jesus. I mean, let's pull these pieces together. Here are God's people down in the valley, down in their humble estate, trying to survive the winter of the season, waiting for spring, and there standing with them among them is Jesus, is the one that is to come, the King of Kings. He's standing there among his people, and it's him who's intercessing on their behalf, crying out to to God the Father, saying, when will you bring mercy on these people? And God speaks back, Comfort them. Springtime is coming. Comfort them. The overflow of goodness is coming into their life. Bring comfort in the midst of the valley. You know, Christian, the challenge for us when we're pursuing the overflow that comes from this journey with God, the challenge is we sometimes, because we're used to a culture that is how quick and painless to get to what I want, and we forget that's just not how God operates. That's not the journey he takes us on. And sometimes the thing that trips us up the most is we just don't have the right expectations. And we say, man, why is this taking so long? God, this isn't happening in my timeline. This is taking far longer than I ever dreamed. Or God, why why are you taking me through this season of pain? And we're caught off guard, and the fact that we don't expect that there's gonna be different seasons. Sometimes it's on the mountaintop, sometimes it's down in the valley. And that's all part of him leading us through to the overflow of goodness. You say, but why does God do that? Well, God doesn't, look what this passage say. God doesn't just stand back in this cold, clinical kind of sovereignty. Just kind of standing back saying, look, I know this is tough, but I mean, if you could see what I see, you'd understand. What does he say? This walk through the valley is coming from an emotional place from God. What does he say how he feels for Jerusalem? He says, I am jealous for you. There's two different types of jealousy. There's jealous of you and jealous for you. If I'm jealous of you, I'm envious of something you have that I want. That's not what we're talking about here. Jealous for you is when you're in a relationship with someone. 
and their affections and attention belong to you and someone else is stealing it and you're jealous for them. But even that kind of jealousy, that takes a lot of vulnerability to admit, doesn't it? It's hard to say, look, I'm sorry, I'm just jealous for your affections and your attention. That's a vulnerable thing to admit. It means that that person has such a hold on you, there's a power they have over you. Do you realize what this passage is saying? God is jealous for you. The vulnerability of God Almighty saying, I love you so much. I am jealous for your affections and your attention. He loves you that much. When he walks you through a valley, it's coming from someone who's not just called as for your own good. He's saying, I love you too much not to take you through this season. That's how much I love you. And even when we're walking through that season, who is standing there down among the myrtles? Jesus is with us. Christian, can I just read to you a, a passage of Scripture? It may be a familiar passage, but can you just hear it freshly? I mean, last week we read through parts of Job to remind us who God is and all his power and majesty and glory, but can I read over you another aspect of who God is? Hear this today, Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup, it overflows. Surely goodness And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christian, did you hear what that talked about? On this journey of following the Good Shepherd, there's going to be times that you're going to be in green pastures and still waters, and there are going to be times when you're in the valley of the shadow of death. But when those seasons, you don't have to fear. Why? Because he's with you. He's standing among the myrtles in the valley. You don't have to fear, and you can find comfort that you are on a path to your cup overflowing. The overflow is coming. You know why? Because he's a good shepherd. You know that surely... Mercy and goodness, Tov, is coming. Goodness is coming from this. He is guiding you through. You say, but how do I know I can trust this good shepherd? You don't know the pain that I'm finding myself in. How do I know I can trust this good shepherd? It's because this good shepherd is no stranger to pain. 
He didn't stand out distant and saying, here, let me try and fix you humanity. No, he came down into the valley. He experienced being oppressed and abused by the people who should have received him. He's oppressed and abused, dragged outside the city, and there his life as the Son of God is offered up on the altar as a sacrifice, and God the Father has to walk through the pain of seeing God the Son executed, knowing that he will die, but he will rise again. Why? He is the sacrifice, so that we don't have to suffer eternal death. And he did that to become the deliverer of our of his people returning to the land from the land of death he becomes the deliverer of his people that is who is standing in the valley among the myrtles standing with you he says i will never leave you nor forsake you do you know what your savior said he said i'm the vine and you're the branches he says every branch of mine will bear fruit. And then he says, those that are bearing fruit, I will prune. I will cut back. Why? So you can bear more fruit. Do you know what that means, Christian? You are always going to be in one of two seasons. Fruit bearing or pruning in preparation for greater fruit bearing. Some of you find yourselves today in a season of fruit bearing. Praise the Lord for those moments. Rest in it. It's an expression of his love, his, even his jealousy for your, for your affections. He's doting on you, his child. He loves you. He's blessing with you. Just rest in it. Accept it. Take it in and praise God for it. Some of you are walking right now through a season of pruning. Rest in it. Because there's one that's standing among the myrtles. He's with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And while you are in that rest in it, because it's an expression of the goodness and provision of God, he's so jealous for your affections, he cannot avoid taking you through this season so that your cup can be overflowing. He's pruning you so that even greater fruit can be born from your branches. Christian, can you have an expectation of what the journey to overflow looks like? Because the valley of the shadow of death and the overflowing of goodness are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes they're green pastures and sometimes they're valleys. One of the greatest... um, works of Christian fiction is an allegory name called Hind's Feet on High Places, written by Hannah Hernard. And it's this amazing story. It's an allegory. And the main character in this story is a young woman named Much Afraid. And the good shepherd comes to her and invites her on an adventure and a journey to take her to high places, the mountaintop. And says, are you willing to go on this adventure? And she says, yes. And he gives her these two guides, these two companions. And they walk along on many adventures. And there's this one particularly stirring chapter where they're walking along and there's a precipice. And the two guides point down that she's going to have to walk down the precipice. And she looks where it leads. And it's this seemingly endless desert. And she says, I'm not going down there. And the guides just point 
And she says, that can't possibly be the path. You don't understand. I'm on my way to high places. This can't be the path. And they just continue to point down to this desert wasteland. She looks, I don't think I'll even, how can I even get out of that? I mean, once you get in that, that's endless for the rest of my life. I must be in that desert. That's exactly the opposite. And she just calls out, good shepherd. And he appears to her at once. He comes to her. And she says, this can't be the path. Tell them. And he says, gently and humbly, this is the path. She says, this is the opposite of everything you, you promised me. You, you promised me. You, you told me I'm going to the high places. How could I get this? And he says, this is not a contradiction. I know you don't understand now. It might be a postponement, but it's not a contradiction, and it's necessary. Will you go? And she's in utter anguish, and all the strength she can muster up, she picks herself up, and she takes one step forward, and the good shepherd takes a step forward with her, and she realizes on this particular journey, the good shepherd's going to walk through it with her. She walks into this wasteland, and she sees there's these pyramids, and she walks into these pyramids. He gets, she gets carried um, taken into these pyramids, and on the first level, she sees this threshing floor with all different types of grain, and all the grain is being beaten, and it's being threshed, and it's being crushed, and it's being pounded into a fine powder so that it can be made into these luxurious loaves of bread. And then she gets taken to this next level, and she looks around, and she sees that there's clay, and the clay is being cut, and it's being kneaded, and it's being pressed, and it's being put and pounded into these various shapes and then they're being placed on the spinning potter's wheel and she looks as the clay is just completely submissive to whatever shape the potter is putting it in. And she's taken finally to this third level and she sees there's this blazing furnace. And Much Afraid is watching as they're putting these precious jewels and these this precious metals in this furnace and they're blazing them in this furnace. And when they come back out, they're more precious than she could have imagined. They're glowing as if the, the fire of the furnace was ignited inside these gemstones. And she leaves just really moved by what she witnessed inside this pyramid and she's walking out. And before she ends up leaving the desert, she runs into one more character, and I want to read you this last part of this chapter. Here's what it says. In all that great desert, there was not a single green thing growing. Neither tree, nor flower, nor plant, save here and there a patch of scraggly gray cacti. On the last morning, she was walking near the tents and huts of the desert dwelling dwellers, when in a lonely corner behind a wall, she came upon a little golden yellow flower growing all alone. An old pipe was connected with a water tank, and in the pipe was one tiny hole through which came an occasional drop of water. And where the drops fell, one by one, there grew the little golden flower. Though where the seed had come from, much afraid, could not imagine, for there are no birds anywhere and no other growing things. And she stopped over the lonely, lovely, little golden face, lifted up so hopefully and so bravely to the feeble drip and cried out softly, what is your name, little flower, for I never saw one like you before. And the tiny plant answered at once in a tone as golden as itself. Behold me, 
My name is acceptance with joy. Much afraid thought of the things which she had seen in the pyramid, the threshing floor and the whirring wheel and the fiery furnace. Somehow the answer of the little golden flower which grew all alone in the waste of the desert stole into her heart and echoed there faintly but sweetly, filling her with comfort. She said to herself, he has brought me here when I did not want to come for his own purpose, I too will look up into his face and say, behold me, I am thy little handmaiden, acceptance with joy. Christian, I want to speak to those of you who find yourself in a valley today. Today is a day to choose acceptance with joy. The good shepherd has brought you here. And he's doing this because there's going to be a cup overflowing. It's coming. He's bringing goodness and overflow into your life. But it requires walking through the valley. It's out of his love and his jealousy for your affections, but know that he is with you. He who's no stranger to pain. No stranger to the valley is walking with you, standing among the murders. There's some of you that I want to speak to today. Maybe you're watching online or watching in our pilot campus. Maybe you're watching right here. I want to speak to those of you today who are saying to yourself, you know what, I, I just, I hear you, but this is why I cannot follow Jesus. This is why I, I'm just not sure about God because why do all these bad things happen in the world? I mean, why does God do that? And see, sometimes I wonder if what you're really saying is, you're globalizing it, but what you're really saying in your heart is, you don't know the hurts that I have walked through. Why did he let this happen to me? How could I trust him? There's only one who can answer those why questions. It's the good shepherd. And what I would plead with you is the best play you have is to just follow closely to the good shepherd who's walking you through this season. Because he gave up his life so that you could find your home in the city of God in heaven. You can trust him. He took away your sins on the cross and rose again from the dead. Follow him today, even if you don't have all the answers. I want to give you an opportunity to take that step. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're here and you're ready to follow Jesus, you want to take that step of faith, then I want to lead you in this simple prayer. Just repeat this in your hearts right where you're seated, silently. Just say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I trust how you're going to guide. I believe that you saved me through the great work on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. I will follow you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. 
or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.